Thank you, Holy Spirit, what you're teaching us about our Papa God, our Father God, and the various nuances of who he is and how he is, and how he desires to be seen in the multiple dimensions of his beauty. Thank you, you're beautiful, wonderful, that each one of these seven primary faces reveal a specific nuanced aspect of your love, how you love, how you love differently. You love differently in government, you love differently in media, you love differently in arts and entertainment, and family, and we're, we're learning the different ways that you love and how your love is that which overthrows the lies of the enemy that have ruled and reigned in these places. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in this series, Rainbow God, Restoring God's Face to Society, we're now beginning session six, where we will look at God as Redeemer, love displayed in religion. We're going to gaze at the face of God as Redeemer, and this is that which is associated with the part of God we generally feel we're most familiar with, the one that has been championed for the last multiple hundred years, particularly since the Great Reformation, but perhaps all the way back from when Jesus went to the cross. This is the one color of God that we've looked into some. Um, we have celebrated this aspect of who he is so much, we've preached it and lived as though this were all he is. Uh, and it's clearly the, the greatest facet of his face for us as lost humanity, and we do want to take the time to fully gaze into the beauty of who he is as Redeemer. As we begin to look at him, we see that a redeemer is one who gains possession by payment or ransom. It's the payment for a prisoner. And I believe we all came from the heart of God before he put us on earth. That's where we started. But we were born lost in a need of being ransomed. All have sinned, and it's sin that separates us from the privilege of living eternally with God. God the Redeemer in his wonderful mercy... We know the story. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He became the slain, the perfect Lamb of God that was slain, that gave to whosoever will the gift of righteousness, and therefore eternal life with him in heaven, the privilege of being with him forever. It is in Jesus that we see the perfect reflection of this face of Redeemer God. And it says about Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, this, of course, the greatest love possible that the Godhead could possibly reveal to us. Greater love has no one, and he would lay down his life for another. You know, it's almost humanly impossible to conceive the level of love that the Godhead exhibited towards humanity. Here they were in heaven with fullness of joy, presence, glory, the myriads and myriads of angels. We see some of that described, you know, in Revelation 4 and 5. And yet they desired to expand their circle of communication and fellowship to those capable of relating to them in an advanced way. And so man was created. From the very beginning, the God had understood the price they would have to pay to make humanity safe for heaven. It says he was a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. They had that in mind already. Yet even though they knew the extreme price and sacrifice, this did not deter them. They went through periods, the Godhead went through periods of almost zero relationship with humanity, yet didn't resort to just exterminating them, as we might be tempted to do, but showed unbelievable patience, allowing them mercy clause after mercy clause. The Godhead stayed true to their original plan, even when Adam and Eve doubted them and betrayed them. They continued true when man was in a united front of evil, building the Tower of Babel. During the days of Noah, only Noah and his family had any inclination towards God, and yet the God had reworked their plan for communion with humanity around him and his family. Yes, the God had experienced moments of breakthrough, they found key individuals like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who seemed to have a little idea as to the Godhead's character. 
Yet the reality of the Old Testament was that it was a people that continually resorted as a people, the people of Israel. It was amazing. They continually went back to worshiping Baal and other idols. And then for those that didn't worship the idols, they thought it all was about that serving the Godhead, serving God was all about legalistic religious observances. And their detestable religiosity was perhaps even more an affront to who the Godhead really was and really is than the out-and-out idolatry. Finally, in the fullness of time, the Godhead implemented the redemption plan of the ages in the person of Christ Jesus. Man had to first know that he was incapable of attaining perfection on his own. And after 4,000 years, it had been conclusively proven you know, the 4,000 years of history of the Old Testament conclusively proved that man could not earn heaven, not even through the blood of sheep, goats, and bulls. So we're looking at the face of Redeemer God. Redeemer God was spliced into humanity as Jesus became flesh in the womb of a girl named Mary. The risk and sacrifice of the Godhead, again, enormous, as they allowed God in the flesh to be mistreated, misunderstood, mocked, betrayed, and ultimately brutally killed so that we might have the right and privilege of a close relationship with the God of the universe. He didn't just die so that we could, quote, go to heaven. He died so that we might have close relationship with him. He didn't just need companionship or he would have kept the angels. He wanted close relational communion with that which was made in his image. He made us capable of experiencing depths of him that even the angels were not wired to be able to experience. We must never forget that this is who God is as Redeemer. Redeemer God of the mountain of religion, or the mountain of worship, isn't just some megalomaniac that needed more subjects. You know, to accompany the billions and billions of angelic creatures he already had. His interest in man has always been relationally driven, and specifically the potential for a truer, deeper love, where free will is absolute, where free will is absolute, and where love is secure. Earth is the processing house for man becoming that which God has desired from the very beginning. The act of bending our will to his and letting him be our Redeemer Savior does something at our core that permits us to experience the depths of who God is when fully in his presence. To be unconditionally loved while we ourselves were being so selfish and treacherous with love conditions us for an eternal reciprocal love and gratitude towards him where the Godhead can finally find the safety to let down their hair, so to speak, and themselves experience unconditionally godly love from their children, his children. God as Redeemer is worthy of being gazed at and studied and understood enough so that we seek to establish this relational priority between God and the sons and daughters who don't yet acknowledge him. I think Elizabeth said in the previous session, you know, everyone is either Christians or pre-Christians. But all our sons, all our daughters, some just haven't recognized it yet. He's looking for relationship, not behavior. We've got to get that. Christianity is about relationship, not about behavior. Relationship will then engender the correct royal behavior. He isn't trying to, he isn't trying to just to get a, a people that behave civilly. He wants us to behave royally. That comes from the heart. That only truly happens when you know you yourself are true royalty. So much more we could do in looking at the face of Redeemer God. Again, he's the one that's been looked at the most and championed the most, but there are deeper aspects even of who he is and what he's done that we must continually expand our hearts to see. So as we go with the template, we're looking now at the rainbow God, the color associated with this aspect 
of society, this aspect associated with the face of God as redeemer on the mountain of religion, and that color is blue. Blue is the color associated with the Holy Spirit. It's the color of truth and revelation. When we look up to the sky, you know, behind the, even if there are clouds there, we see blue skies. If you can't see blue skies, you just haven't gone high enough yet. Nothing above us is in itself. Blues, will we find out, but the effect of the endless sky is blue. Additionally, when you peer into the deep sea, though nothing is in itself blue, the hue of the deep is the color blue. David in the Psalms said this, Whither shall I go from your spirit? How can I go from your spirit? If I take the wings of the morning and go as high as possible, you are there. If I go to the deepest parts of the earth, you are there. We are constantly surrounded deep and wide by this color of God as Redeemer. In the study of chromotherapy, blue is said to lubricate the joints and connective tissue. It also regenerates the circulatory system. Those are all things to do with connection. Again, chromotherapy is a science that there is healing through colors. And um, it's amazing that it's, it's the joints and connective tissue that get affected by the color blue. If we haven't known him as Savior Redeemer, we, we find ourselves disconnected from reality, from life. And when we do finally connect with him, we become a vital part of the whole, as well as find as our unique niche where we're in that proper relationship with the blue color of who our God is. Certain that one day we'll even have a much greater understanding of the power and the glory of the colors, as I keep saying. But for now, we, we share based on what we see, and as he tells us more, we'll share that. We always know that there's more of God's majesty to be discovered, but there is something even in these colors. Uh, they're not just symbolic of something. They actually are something, and as they're restored, these faces of God are restored to society. The rainbow colors of God restored to society. They will release even the healing of God into these areas of society. Now we want to look at the Revelation 5.12 template that we've been uh, discovering in every one of these sessions. And we will see that love is displayed as honor. You know, the Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb to receive power, wisdom, strength, riches, honor, glory, and blessing. These are all seven manifestations of his love to be restored, to re be re-imaged in society, to be represented. As we see him, we now manifest these aspects of the way that he loves in society. <coughs> the attribute associated with the Redeemer face of God is honor. Worthy is the Lamb to receive honor. This means that what gets restored to both society and to God when he is received as Redeemer is honor. Serving God on the mountain of religion is all about showcasing honor. Reverence, value, respect have everything to do with knowing God as Redeemer. There's an honor that he is due that no one else can attain to as he humbled himself to the pain and rejection of the cross in order that we might find a relational place with him. The price he paid as Redeemer entitles him to the highest status of honor on the planet and in the universe. It was additionally so honorable the way he came among us. He didn't come forcing religion down our throats. He had the power to do so, but he didn't do that. But he offered the free gift of salvation. He came as a reconciler between man and God rather than an enforcer of judgment. We must remember that so that we re-image him properly. We, are all, we were all deserving of maximum ju judgment, but he went one step lower making eternal salvation 99.9% .9 his effort and our 0.1% being just to say yes. Talk about grace. It's amazing grace. He so desired to be known and related to that the limited requirements of the Ten Commandments that he had in the Old Testament, they were reduced to, will you accept? the free gift of righteousness. Wow. What an honorable proposal. As we advance our assignment on this mountain of religion, going up against the other false religions and idols that compete for the heart of God, 
We must advance as he modeled. The way is simultaneously very narrow and immensely wide. Jesus is the only door to eternal salvation and life in eternity with the Father. That's narrow. That's the narrowness of it. But the incredible width of it is it's that simple. It's not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. It's not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments plus be holy as I am holy. It's just Jesus. The be ye holy as I am holy command was and is an impossibility unless Jesus and the Holy Spirit abide in us in power. He boiled redemption down to, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. You know, the John 3.16, unforgettable. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him and what he did for us, because we couldn't, he could then have, she could then have eternal life. That's why there is such a severe consequence. You have to understand this part as well. That's why there is such a severe consequence to saying no to that offer. The dishonor is just too great. It's the most dishonorable thing imaginable for one who gave everything on our behalf. As Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. If the idea of hell is hard to stomach, it is for many, it's a big debate going on right now, it truly is the just reward for dishonoring this level of sacrifice. When we see and understand the honorable example of our Redeemer, we see that the kingdom of God can never be advanced. The kingdom of God does not advance through imposition or force. It is against his honorable DNA. In a culture of true honor, there is no spoken or even implied. You have to. There's only you get to's or you want to's in a culture of honor. That's how heaven operates. There are no cops or police force in heaven. All operate under the bounds and constraints of honor. It's no longer the fear of God that constrains. It's the honor of God that constrains. We will enjoy worshiping over, we will worship him over and over and over again, not because Michael is prodding everyone, hey, everyone sing, but because it will be the only satisfying thing we can do as our awareness of the honor due him is clearly evidenced. I heard someone say that they were shown that the reason the 24 elders are constantly throwing down their crowns and saying, holy, 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 you know that, it says in Revelation, is because another element of his glory and his honor has just been made known to them. And it just becomes impossible for them to keep their crowns on. As the awareness of who he is continues to expand even for those that are there and it forces them to their knees, and they can't keep their crowns on. It seems blasphemous to do so. They're not obeying commands to honor him. There's not the chief guy up there, not Gabriel or Mike, saying, hey, come on, hit it. That's not how heaven operates. He's not a megalomaniac. So I want to look now at the angelic forces of God as Redeemer that are on the mountain of religion. And again, we're on every one of these areas of society identifying who I believe the Lord showed me is the angel or the archangel of this mountain of society, but more importantly, the angel assigned to restore this aspect of the image or knowledge of God to society. And I believe that it's Michael, the archangel, who is the great angel of the mountain of religion. Um, at least with him, we have somebody whose name is in the Bible, so maybe people won't freak out over that as much. But his name, Michael, we're telling you all these archangels, their name ends in L because they're about restoring some aspect of knowledge of him, some aspect of the image of God. His name means who is like God. And appropriately, he's the one assigned to advance a people who look like God. I do also, I do also believe that he is the archangel that watches over Israel. 
But if we really understand the mountain of religion assignment, we would see that there's an intertwining of Israel's destiny and the church's destiny. Jerusalem is still the world headquarters for the mountain of religion, and it is why four major religions have it as their most important spiritual post. To be there, you'll see that every religious demon from hell has a claw in Jerusalem because they know this is the ultimate place for contention as well for the great storyline of God. All the big religious demons have their talons in Jerusalem. Now, so for a believer, Israel can't be ignored because the turning around of Israel is being scripted to coincide with the, the correct knowledge of God being displayed through the church. When we have the basic representation of who he is advanced to an acceptable level, then he will become attractive even to the Jew. That'll be one of the signs that we are manifesting the proper image of God is that it will be attractive to the Jews in a more wholesale way. That's why it's all being scripted together. Jews will often describe themselves as being cynical and hard-hearted and opinionated, but they, in fact, are just being wait. They're just waiting to be won over by that which is real. Um, so Michael oversees matters with Israel, and I believe as well with the church. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verse 21, we see that it requires the assistance of Michael to deal with the prince of Persia, if you remember that. And this is the present principality who's behind the darkness in Islam, which is the number two religion in the whole world. It is, in fact, a religious demon that's trying to take out Israel. And Michael is the significant ensurer that this won't happen. He's a mighty, mighty angel whose forces are unparalleled. And I believe that since Rosh Hashanah of 2012, he's been activated to another level as the Lord initiates the destruction of the stronghold of the prince of Persia. Not because he's against Muslims, but because he's so for them. He is going to be rescuing hundreds of millions with his kindness and goodness. I believe that even much of the present-day activity of ISIS is only serving to accelerate the erosion of the power of this demon. You know, his, his nastiness and hatred is being exposed as never before, and much of the increased activity of recent years is a last desperate hurrah to hold back the Muslim masses that are coming to Jesus. And they will exponentially run to him in these coming years. I read more Muslims, saw a study, have come to Jesus in the last 20 years than the entirety of their history put together. And most of that has happened in the last 10 years. Michael works to protect Israel, but he also works to keep them from wholesalely killing themselves. We have to understand that because there is a spirit of death and murder that is a primary partner of the prince of Persia. Remember that Michael is working specifically for the Redeemer face of God. God is not out to eliminate anyone or any people group. He's in love with all his kids, and he'll go to every end possible to win them to himself. And Michael has, and his mighty forces have a major role in this. And I tell you this, we want to be aware who's also working on the assignment here with us. Angels around us, multiple, multiple armies of angels, and we will begin to see them more and more and learn to interact and work in harmony with them as we become connected and as we harmonize even with his reformation assignment for society. See, when we're not going about what he's going about, then even the angelic forces that are disposable for us are not activated on our behalf because we are not on target, not on mission. Now, the big lie about God on the mountain of religion, and every one of these areas, we are going after the big lie because the battle is all about the knowledge. It's competing knowledges, the knowledge of God versus the counterfeit knowledge. We're using the Elijah versus Baal grid that we talked about out of 1 Kings 18 and applying it to the seven faces of God and the corresponding areas of society. The battle in the story of Elijah was, just as in every present day of culture, over the correct knowledge of God. We win as we confront and tear down a lie or a wrong perspective of God. So we want to look at it now in this redeemer face of God, the mountain of religion, what is the lie? And I believe the lie being perpetuated about God in our current religious system is that 
You have to work hard and be good in order to know God. That's the lie, the mountain of religion. You have to work hard and be good in order to know God. This is the lie of every major religion. What makes them all false religions is that lie. They're built on a religious spirit. Even followers of Christ, as we know, can fall into the deception of this lie, and it's a battlefield in our own Christian circles. The specific lie about God on the mountain of religion is that there's no way God is going to accept anything less than us obeying his strict rules. That's the lie. An added burden to most false religion is that even if you do all that, even if you follow the fasts and do everything, there's no assurance of eternal salvation. As we know, for instance, for Muslims, despite all the fasts and five daily prayers, they're never guaranteed an eternal existence. And so they're riddled with eternal insecurity in day-to-day life. So what's the truth that destroys the lie? truth that destroys the lie is that we need a redeemer in order to know God. We need a redeemer in order to know God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says, but God sent Jesus to be the payment for our sins as we embrace his redemptive work on the cross. As we do that, we're credited with the same righteousness that he had. Wow, what a deal. We become the righteousness of God as we accept what he did for us. We never have to behave good enough to get into heaven. We just have to believe. In no other religion is the requirement simply to believe. It's belief plus. Even as believers, we often get worked over by a religious spirit, and we slip into salvation being about believing plus some hard work and good behavior. I believe in pursuing good works. I do believe in that. The Bible encourages that. But good works are towards our rewards, our heavenly rewards, not towards our salvation. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the truth that overcomes the lie. If we will believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is how we connect properly with the God of the universe. I think we, you know, a reason we get confused about God in this way is that we have such a disconnect at times, this is an important part right here, at connecting the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God seems to be perfectly willing to shove religion down our throats. He seems to be the God of do it or else. And that seems so foreign to the representation we have through Jesus of one who offers salvation to whosoever will. So I'd like to give you what I believe is a key insight that can really help us in this, in this matter. And I believe it's really helped me process this correctly. <clears throat> you know, as we're stating over and over and over again, the end game is the knowledge of the glory of God. How good and how kind he is in all his nuanced ways Filling the whole earth. That's the end game. That's the end goal that's uh, developing progressively. Today, the world has actually grown into a significant level of the knowledge of God, despite our concerns that we're falling apart. And you, you, look, you compare to the Stone Age or the Dark Age or the Middle Age, Middle Ages, or even 100 years ago. I'm, yeah, I'm not just talking about knowledge that he saves but expanded perspectives of who he is and specifically how he is. It's God that hates racism and the judging of one another by skin color, and the world is theoretically on board with that better than they have ever been. It's God who is against women being demeaned and discriminated against, and once again, it is the best it's ever been in history. It's God that's 100% against poverty. And the world is at its most compassionate ever regarding that right now. Society has been progressively growing up in the knowledge of God and into his better ways. They haven't made the full connection to the son Jesus, but this is, these are aspects of how he is that they are picking up. 
In fact, there, there's never been a time when the rights of the individuals that have been there's never been a time when the rights of the individuals have ever been championed so much as now. You know, it's globally uncool to discriminate against anyone. As I said, even bully. Don't bully anybody on Facebook. It's not cool. Ask, this is actually also an aspect of who God is, whether people realize it or not. We have the collective conscience of the world being advanced. They, learn, they know not to think skin color, gender, or even sexual preference. They've added that on their own. They don't want any kind of discrimination against anyone for any reason at all. It's because they've learned to value the individual. In previous generations, we would have jails and the psych wards filled with the people that are now mar marched for and defended. This, too, is consistent with who God is and that he profoundly loves and cares for everyone, no matter their level of brokenness. We just haven't yet understood how to love and validate individuals who are still stuck in their sin. But God is patient and okay with our progressive advance. As a society, society knows that murderers and pedophiles shouldn't be marched for, so we don't see that going around anywhere. But we're still not quite sure where to draw the line is. Where's the line of identity versus behavior? I believe God is patient with that as there is a pro progressive societal growth into his ways. And we're about to start the fastest growth spurt on that ever, especially once he has his church secure in her identity and knowing how to prioritize love. <clears throat> See, I believe that in early Bible times, society was in a very young, as it were, toddler stage. As many of you parents are aware, the parenting of a two-year-old is quite limited in deep emotional connections. <laughs> if you've had your two-year-olds, it's a lot of, no, 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 don't touch that, don't do that. A priority at that age is to help the child survive the foolishness and curiosity of that age in order to make it to the older stage where you can have these deeper relationships with them. For the moment is, don't bite your sister. Don't put your finger into the electric outlet. Don't run out into traffic. Don't play with matches. There's not a lot of, let's sit down together and you tell me your dreams for the future. <laughs> See, I think God has had to deal with society based on what society's collective age and stage has been. Like the perfect father, he's been extremely patient and apparently only working on age-appropriate things, often one at a time. Most of the Old Testament seemed to be about addressing idolatry. I remember being bothered about this aspect of God as it relates to matters such as polygamy or slavery. I mean, God and Abraham were friends. God walked and talked personally with Abraham. He gave him a personal word personal prophetic word from the God of the universe in person. I mean, this blow your mind with that one. He's like, hey, Abraham, do you see the stars in the sky? Well, your descendants are going to be like that in number. Abraham, do you see the sand by the shore we're walking on? Your descendants are going to be innumerable just like that. And so I asked the Lord, I said, why? If you're already talking with Abraham, why didn't you just add and hey, one wife. <laughs> Why didn't you just throw that in? Seems like so many reasons to have done that. We might have peace in the Middle East right now if he had done that. If Abraham had just stuck with Sarah, not moved on to Hagar and then Keturah, not to mention Abraham's slaves. I heard the Lord said, because I wasn't working on that then. He said, if they could have understood that, that was great, but I was working on age-appropriate matters, what they had an ability to grasp at that time. I had the same question as it regards to another one of his great friends in the Old Testament, David. 
From Psalms, we can tell he had quite a close relationship with God. He would speak of beholding the beauty of the Lord and ascending into his holy mountain. Like, this is a friend of God. So I asked, same thing about David. Why not just tell him one wife, dude? And what about for both of them? Hey, no slaves either. I'm against slavery. Heard the Lord say the same thing. Because I wasn't working on that then. So you don't work with two-year-olds or even five-year-olds or even 10-year-olds on how to drive a car. You don't instruct them on how to be married and have a family. There's an appropriate time. God has been patiently raising not just his people, but society, all his sons and daughters, even those who don't know, don't know that they are his. We can look in the scriptures. We see that by the New Testament times, God's good friends, Abraham and David, apparently like the best friends of God. You can maybe put Moses in that category. But God's good friends, Abraham and David, wouldn't even have qualified as church leaders by New Testament times. In fact, they would have, Paul would have had, you know, the, the church instructed to shun them. Paul had some pointed church leadership guidelines. He who will be a pastor, bishop, may be only, only be the husband of one wife. When did that switch happen? Wow, the father of our faith, Abraham, think of that. The father of our faith, Abraham, would not have qualified for even being a leader in the New Testament church. Nor would he or David have qualified today. Any leader today who would espouse polygamy or slavery would quickly become a pariah, not just in the church, but in society itself. In fact, society today has a collective consciousness of God that in many ways exceeds the knowledge of God of the New Testament church. Think about that for a minute. Now, Paul was aware, he had become aware that polygamy was out. But he wasn't aware that slavery was out. So he's given instructions like, only marry one. They got that part. They're a little older now. But he gave, he's given instructions on how slaves were to obey their masters and how masters should properly treat slaves. So the great apostle Paul would seemingly fail the test for leadership today. You can imagine if... A church leader was speaking on that today. Not only would the church throw them out, but the city would throw them out. You know, some teach and believe that God evolved from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's an easy thing to think based on how differently he spoke and communicated there versus how he spoke and communicated through Jesus. And I don't think it was that. I believe he's had to systematically educate society and his church as to his ways. It's the knowledge of God life school system. We see this is how he deals with us as individuals even today. He's always working on something with our character. I don't know if you've noticed that. But he never seems to just go after everything at one time. Thank you, Lord. We often get surprised when we've grown in one area to discover that we have yet another area that he's putting his finger on. We finally get a victory like, man, I must be close to Enoch stage. And then he's like, well, here's next. You're like, ooh, just when we thought we were getting close. You see, if we look even at Jesus' own disciples, it becomes evident in the way they wrote the, the Gospels that they were still quite chauvinistic. All the men had names, but they would often just lump in. And many women would also follow Jesus. Jesus was modeling full inclusion of women, but it wasn't yet preaching it. He wasn't yet preaching it. Jesus was modeling the full inclusion, but he wasn't preaching it. And we just want to see that God is so patient. He's still putting up with so much mess in his church that not so many years in the future we'll look back and say, do you remember back when we used to think gossiping was really okay, for instance? No, we'll just throw that one in. <laughs> or do you remember when we used to go to church while living in sin and we had no fear? We don't know, you know. Or do you remember when we thought it was okay to be judgmental of homosexuals? Oh, I just hit another one there, didn't I? We don't know what in the future we'll go back and say, we'll look back to this day and say, wasn't it amazing we thought God was okay with that, and now we know it's not? Point here is that it becomes important to know the next thing he's putting his finger on, both individually and in society, rather than choosing 
the societal battles that we think are supposed to happen. This goes with our Reformation assignment. For example, it seems quite obvious to me that, I don't know, somewhere around three, four, five years ago, that God must have released some edict, something happened in heaven that says, okay, sex trafficking has to be addressed. All of a sudden, everybody is on it, whether they're in the church or out of the church, whether they're Hollywood stars, sports stars, everyone's on it, society's on it, the church is on it. Like, and it's just like everybody knows about it now, like we got to do something about it. And God's behind that because I think it's, it's like he's ne- this is next. The sad thing is that the church should be ahead of the curve on the knowledge of God. But often not only are we not ahead, we're behind. Society was ahead of most of the church as it relates to slavery. We thought it was part of predestination, as I pointed out. Same with discrimination against women. We thought they you know, essentially existed to enhance a man. Even today, while much of the church is consumed with gaze, knowing how horrible their sin is before God, God is much more concerned that his church learn to love the sinful and the unlovely. His church still thinks he's more about rules and behavior than about love and relationship. And yes, they both have to fit into the equation, but we have to lead with love, not rules. Much of the society is ahead of us in that aspect of the knowledge of God, but because we're behind, they don't know it's actually God's heart being revealed to them. See, they're learning things about God despite the church in many ways, and they haven't made the connection. But it's okay. God allows dots to be formed, and he connects them at the right time. Jesus had already revealed this aspect of God to us, but they didn't get it then. And most of us are still not getting it. Jesus, again, was known as friend of sinners. He wasn't just known as he who ministers to sinners. Many are cool with that. Yeah, let's minister to sinners. Yeah. But he was friend of sinners. We're reliving that again. I mean, that looks like endorsing or condoning sin. You can't just hang out with the prostitutes and pimps and drunks and the like, or they might think their sin or deception is okay, Jesus. This seemingly condoning behavior of Jesus so infuriated the religious leaders that they set out to prove he was no Messiah. We talked about that, and I believe, again, that they, they, they did a whole setup. The woman caught in the act of adultery, she's caught in the act of adultery because they worked with the man to set it up because they needed to get Jesus on a legal thing of how he was about sin. And, uh, you know, the obvious hypocrisy... There, when they bring the woman, if they caught her in the act, why is the dude not here? And and when Jesus, it's it's worth us just repeating that again, just what Jesus, what Jesus, how he wouldn't give the the Pharisees any satisfaction. But he most likely began writing in the sand, you know, the names of their lovers or whatever sin they had, and they began to realize, oops, we had better leave. Here. And then when the last accuser was gone, Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. It, you know, I don't believe it was wasted between them. The poignant hypocrisy of that moment that the man of the party was not there and that she was probably set up. Jesus saw that she was brought humiliated, that this was an act of humiliation by religious zealots who didn't know who he was at all. And so he just said, I don't condemn you either. She had been publicly humiliated. Jesus chased off all the accusers, and he ministered unconditional love to her. Again, only after he chased off her accusers did he end with the go and sin no more, without giving her a sermon or a speech. He's like like saying, you know the rules. The reality was she had been ministered by the God of the universe, and her conscience was now restored. Consciences get restored when they encounter unconditional love. And she was ready to live free from sin. The Lord spoke to me that he's doing the same thing today. The church is dragging out the gays and the LGBT community who together add up to only 2.8% of the population based on a very thorough July 2014 government survey. You should know 2.8% 
the two of them put together. And 100 years ago, it was about 5%. But yet we're dragging them out and pointing an accusing finger at them. This is why we're suffering in society. Our society has problems because this 2.8% have right to marry and do things. Here's the deal. Yes, they're guilty, and many are deceived into thinking it's okay. But Jesus isn't going to give cold religious people any satisfaction. He has no interest in making it clear to the LGBT community they are in sin until he has chased off all the accusers. Then he will minister his unconditional love and acceptance. Remember, he's acceptance. He's a God of belonging. He will then minister his unconditional love and acceptance of them in their mess. And then, only then will he point out, yeah, this sin. While we feel urged to make known our stances on sin, our Redeemer is known for his stance on hearts. <clears throat> and I know this has to be pastored in, in different and wise ways when it's something in the church. I understand there's many nuances of how this manifests, but I'm saying I believe his priority right now is us learning to radically love and accept sinners and actually be known for that rather than known for what we're against. recent survey study there was in a mall they had people were asked a question what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the words so and so and they gave them like five but one of them was evangelical Christian and 91% responded anti-homosexual so we're known for being anti-homosexual this all connects to his honorable way remember the redeemer it's about honor being restored the honorable way he goes after people's hearts. Pharisees always want to know what one's stance on sin is. The Redeemer is always looking for ways to reach the heart. Christianity is the only religion where God cares more about our individual hearts than he does about our behavior. To say that again, Christianity is the only religion where God cares more about our individual hearts than he does about our behavior. Our God Redeemer has done everything possible so that we can operate from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. If he seemed different in the Old Testament, it was just because that's how you deal with children. Does that, does that help you? Is that clear? So we went on this mountain by making it most clear that salvation is by grace and not by works and that all can accept the free gift even before they clean up their act. Give them a chance to encounter Jesus. And for that to happen, they have to experience unconditional love. And then the Holy Spirit can take care of the part we're trying to take care of before they ever come to him. Elizabeth. You know, the way this can immediately play out in our individual lives, even the next time you go to the grocery store, is Think about this. What if you really felt free to love extravagantly and radically without having to seal the deal or appear that you're condoning someone else's lifestyle? If we were free from those two things, how much more would we love and step into every situation, not with an agenda, but with just the overflow of the love that's been lavished on us. You know, we could go into any setting and meet someone. I did the other day at Walmart, and there was a young man, and I had just asked God, show me just one person here who um, needs to feel your love today. And so usually I try to kind of prime the pump by asking God a question about them. So I asked God, I said, show me what, whoever you point out to me, what is one of your favorite things about them? So I walked up to this young man who was working in the store, and I um, just shared with him, I think it was something like um, how 
how he had an uh, attention to details and how he was really good at handling details. And, and I said, you know, I'm a Christian, and I was asking God to give me somebody to encourage today, and he told me it was you. And I asked him what his favorite, what one of his favorite things about you is, and he said that he just loves your attention to details. And as I was saying that, I got a little more, so I said, and, you know, he understands that that was kind of misunderstood as you were young, and it, and it looked like kind of attention deficit disorder, but but the truth is you're really good with details, and you get very absorbed in one thing, and... Um, and he, just at that moment, his coworker came by and looked at, I didn't realize it, but this huge display, a very ornate display. It was like a Valentine's Day. All these hearts, and I mean, it was like a little pyramid, and the way it was all laid out, you would think it was some fancy department store. He had put so much attention to the details. She said, oh, you did a great job on that. I said, yeah, see, that's what we're talking about. God loves that about you. And then he just began to share his heart, and we just had this great conversation and I know that, that God used that to, to begin to heal his perspective of God's perspective of him. That's worth a lot, right? Even though I don't know what kind of lifestyle he was in. I don't know, you know, I don't know anything other than I just got to love on him. And it, it filled me back up to be able to get that love flowing through me. Okay, when we encounter God as Redeemer... We are assured of our eternal security. When we encounter God as Redeemer, we are assured of our eternal security. That can sound so trite, but that's a big deal to people that don't have it. So to the degree that this following um, paragraph resonates with you, to that degree we want to adore and gaze at and magnify this Redeemer face of God I need to know that even though I don't deserve it, God has secured a place for me forever with him in heaven. I need to know that I was valuable to God before I knew my need for Jesus. And because of my value, he sent Jesus to redeem me. I need to know that as I believe in and relate to Jesus as my Savior, that he has already dealt with everything that has ever or will ever come between me and God. I need to know that God is capable of redeeming me and everything about my life. I need to see God's face as Redeemer. There's just one particular line in there I want to point out. I need to know that I was valuable to God before I knew my need for Jesus. This is critical, not just so that we feel how valuable we are, but when we don't know that we were each valuable to God before we even knew we needed Jesus, before we invited Jesus into our hearts and into our lives as Savior, we already had the same value that we do with him. We've known that, but we really need to know it in a conscious way because it's the very belief that keeps us from valuing the people around us that don't have Jesus yet. And they feel it from us. I was um, slammed with that reality when we went to Israel one time, and I felt so unproductive because we'd already been several times, we'd toured lots of places. And I was like, I should be like, you know, leading someone to Christ here. And, and God just began to dialogue with me about the value of just loving the Jews that were there. I mean, I, I know that in theory, but I really needed to own that. And he, and he showed me, like, you're, because you're valuable to me, I sent my son Jesus. And that will absolutely change the way we interact with those around us. And it'll make you see yourself differently, too. Okay. So it's critical that we get our perspective of God healed. What we see, we will show. 
So let's get the truth and then show the truth. I'm going to just read over you God's Redeemer heart. So let's just close our eyes and just... Holy Spirit, we want to get this part of your heart. Would you reveal this truth to us in our innermost being? My sons and daughters, my heart longs for you to have your security in me and nothing else. You don't ever need to work hard to be close to me. Just believe. Believe that I had a plan and that my plan worked. I gave my son Jesus to the earth to doubt, to ridicule, to be betrayed, beaten, and crucified just for you. I gave him to the earth as the only perfect one to live in righteousness and then be unjustly sentenced to death so that you would never have to live under the reality of your imperfection. Your reality, if you'll believe me, is this. You are righteous because Jesus made you righteous. You are already perfect because Jesus was perfect enough for the both of you. He's more than enough to resolve anything that has or ever will come between you and me. So stop trying to be perfect. I don't need you to be perfect. You have a redeemer, one who paid all that you will ever owe with no strings attached. You choose. Work hard for nothing or believe in your Redeemer, your Savior, Jesus, and receive my kingdom for all of eternity. It is my honor to give it to you. Please don't allow the enemy to add anything to the simplicity of the truth of what Jesus did for you. He has for so long, but through you, I say enough. Enough striving Enough living like I'm unreasonable and angry with the world. See my compassion, my kindness, and give it away radically and extravagantly. Know it and live a life of freedom that convinces others of the truth of my heart towards them, the truth of Jesus. Refuse to be preoccupied with sin your sin, their sin, it's irrelevant in the light of my holiness. You will be holy as I am holy as you look at me, as you do life with me, as we process together. I've wired all of you to grow up into me as we have relationship you can't grow up into holiness apart from me, and neither can anyone else. Just look at me and teach them to do the same. I'm so pleased with even one glimpse from you, from any of my children. I'm not waiting for you to get it together before you turn to me. Turn to me now in every way because I made a way for you through your Redeemer through your Redeemer alone, nothing more and nothing less. He is your way to draw near without your sin consuming you. I want you near me now, not when you get better or act better. Honor me by living free from guilt and shame. Honor me by speaking and acting in a way that convinces others that they too are free from guilt and shame if and only if they believe and receive my perfect son as their redeemer. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you did for each one of us. And thank you, God, Redeemer God, 
for giving us limitless ways to say back to you how much we love you and honor you for redeeming us. Thank you for allowing us intimacy with you without having to strive and labor. And oh God, would you teach us the language that will allow others to understand that they don't have to work to know you either. In Jesus, our Redeemer's name, amen. This podcast was made available by contributions from listeners like you. To donate, go online to restore7.org. Thank you.